Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast funded entirely through Soros protest checks. We're just kidding. Please give us your money on Patreon. Give us your money. All right. Today we have Laura and Kellen. My name is Laura, and I'm here to say that my labor's exploited in a major way. Aw, oh, yeah. She wrote that, you guys. <laughs> it's real original. Killing it. <laughs> As the intro may have suggested, the two of us are here today to talk to you about a topic we hold very near and dear. Graduate student, student unionization. Um, we have a few guests who are coming on who care just as much as we do about this issue. Uh, but first, we wanted to tell you a little bit about our view of the situation, what grad unions do, why we need them, and why we need them to be strong. I'm a teaching assistant and PhD student at the University at Buffalo, which is part of the New York State Collegiate System, uh, or SUNY system. I started three semesters ago, so I've had three different experiences teaching. My first semester, as a brand new PhD student, I was given two completely separate teaching assignments. The first was World Civilizations, 1400 to Present, and the second was Intro to African American Studies. Obviously, these are two very different styles of classes. (laughs) (laughs) Really not appropriate for me to be teaching both of those. Um, The second semester, I had three sections of World Civilizations, 1400 to Present, With almost 70 students, and I was also dubbed head TA, which essentially meant nothing other than me having to work way more than the other TAs, including creating the freaking midterm and final exams instead of the actual professor for the same pay as the other TAs. Because, like, why not have the person who's actually a tenured professor do that work? And, like, let's just have Laura do it instead. Yeah, that's cool. So... So going into this semester, I knew the numbers were in my classes were lower than they should have been for my TA assignment. So I notified the department early and I was like, hey guys, can you please let me know what's going on with this? I just don't want to be thrown into another classroom last minute. And they kept responding like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Well, after two weeks of classes with the numbers still down, My department notified me and the other two TAs on this class, and keep in mind this was after the ad drop date, so students were screwed if they were in one of the smaller recitation sections, and they told my friend Kristen that all of her recitation sections were canceled, and she would have a new class three days a week, and then she told my friend Kate that and I that we would have a couple of recitation sections for our original assignment. And a whole different TA assignment with a completely different class. So (laughs) I complained about this saying it didn't make any sense and seems like an absurd amount of work that no one else in the department has to do because what I failed to mention earlier is that while I've had these very intense TA assignments, some of the students have just been graders or have literally had to do nothing at all and still got paid. (sighs) So once I complained to the department, they quote-unquote, solved the problem by giving me all of the recitation sections and making my friends Kristen and Kate's 
Kate graders for a different class. So I, I can't tell if I'm being exploited because I have a bunch of experience as an educator already or because I've raised too many questions or what, or if I don't really know, but it's been extremely frustrated and I've almost dropped out on several occasions because of it. The other layer at my school, which is very interesting, is that we are unionized. Um, well, the teaching and graduate assistants, um, but our union has essentially no teeth because the union rep who's been in office for about 10 years has done absolutely nothing. We get paid the least out of the entire New York state system, which Buffalo is absolutely not the cheapest place to live. Like, let's keep in mind there's like Binghamton in there, random other places that are very cheap to live. Um, And on top of that, our student fees aren't waived. So, for example, my stipend is meant to be $13,000 a year. Already, this is completely... Right. It's completely unlivable. Um, And even UB has their, like, projected, like, how much money it costs to live in Buffalo as a graduate student, including all of the fees. And they project it at, like, $23,000 a year. But yet they pay their grad grad students $13,000 a year. And then on top of that, I have to pay $2,000 a year in student fees. So I actually make $11,000 a year before taxes. And this is just surrounding my role as an educator. It doesn't take into account all of the research I'm producing for the university. So (laughs) the amount of exploitation that I personally face is unreal. My story is not unique in any way on my campus. Um, Yes, I'm at a public institution, which is generally less funded than the other schools, But there's no excuse for the inequality, both in pay and in labor, at the school. Our administrators make upwards of $700,000 a year, just beyond bloated salaries. And in addition, the teaching assistants and graduate assistants that are in the science and engineering fields make double what we make in the humanities. So not only is there a large issue with the whole school, there's massive inequality that punishes grad students in the humanities. In theory, our union would really protect us against these sorts of issues, and I think we are in the process of getting someone else to represent us to make that happen. Fingers fucking crossed. But this shit is fucked up. It's fucked up because we are beyond exploited, and it's also fucked up that the undergraduates at my school get a worse education because their TAs are so overworked and undertrained and can't give them a proper education. The whole yeah. university works so much more, so much more like a business than an actual institution of higher learning. It pimps out the TAs to the university like, here, grad students, be grateful you're even getting this education. And it often completely leaves me at a loss of words. Except now, because yeah. I'm talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I totally feel this. Um, I'm at Columbia, which is, you know, another, in another little section of New York um, State, the city uh, in Manhattan. And I've said before that Columbia is, like, essentially just a hedge fund that, that offers classes. It's it's a nightmare. Um, the <laughs> tiny bit of good news Uh, is that there's a large group of people, and we even have over 800 signatures that are involved in a campaign to get teaching assistants and graduate assistants and 
adjunct professors a living wage. So we do have some momentum on the ground at our campus. It's just not coming from our union right now. Yeah. God, that's terrible. As I as I mentioned, I'm at, I'm at Columbia, um, which is a private institution. And just to like give you all a little bit of background, we'll get more into it um, as the show goes on. Um, but graduate unions at private institutions were not legal um, up until about, I guess, a year ago. Um, the NLRB reversed a previous decision that had in turn been a reversal of a, another previous decision. There's like a lot of flip-flopping on this issue that said that graduate students were in fact workers and that they could unionize. And so Columbia has been sort of at the forefront of trying to make that happen. And there was a unionization vote last fall, I think, about a year ago. And graduate students voted overwhelmingly to uh, start a union. It was like way more than half or way more than twice as many people voted for than against, Um, like overwhelming. And the university's strategy has basically been to just stonewall. And I think, yeah, I think that we can see a little bit of why as we sort of pivot because we, before we got to go to our guests, um, we thought we'd also chat a little bit about two recent Jacobin articles that I think touch on the importance of unionization for grad workers. So the first one that we wanted to talk about is Trump versus Grad Workers by Trish Colley. Um, if we're pronouncing that wrong, let us know. Um, apologies. But I kind of she... hope it's kale. Kale. Yeah. <laughs> like the vegetable. Tasty. Sorry. Yum. Um, she describes you Chicago's strategy for beating the unionization drive. You Chicago is also just having like a shit time organizing a union. And the strategy there is stall until Trump reorganizes the NLRB. Um, and this is also essentially Columbia's strategy just to keep pushing, like coming up with objections to formally recognizing the union until the makeup of the NLRB changes because Trump has the ability to appoint other people and then use that as an excuse to appeal and hopefully rule again that grad students aren't workers. So for me, this is like really particularly annoying because Columbia and the president of Columbia, Lee Bollinger, keeps sending out these emails about like Trump and like how bad he is and how bad his policies are and how um, the university stands with students. So when Trump was elected, they sent out an email that was like, in the time of Trump, we care about all of our students. And then that's exactly what they sound like. uh, (laughs) Yeah. After the Muslim ban, and then again after the DACA catastrophe, they sent out other emails that were like, we are working hard to provide a learning environment for all students of all backgrounds. And it's just like such a joke because they like to position themselves against so much of the Trump administration's obvious illiberal behavior um, and cast themselves as this bastion of, of liberal education and, you know, the values of human rights and, and um, all of this stuff. And at the same time, they're relying on Trump's illiberality, if that's how I'm pronouncing, if I'm pronouncing that word correctly, to quash graduate student organizing. Like, the Trump administration's stance on labor is the only thing that's going to potentially save them from having to deal with our union. And it's just, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. It, like, reminds me of, like, 
the Hillary Clinton campaign. It's just like, hey, I'm just like one of you. I'm not, it doesn't matter that I'm a millionaire. It's totally fucking fine. And it's just like, just because you're not Trump does not mean we trust you. It does not mean that you are an ally or a friend to us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the next article that we wanted to talk about is called The Union Option, and it was written by Alex Press. It just came out. These are both from from October. And Press points out in this article that some of the most important workplace protections that unions offer are protections for workers against sexual harassment or assault by their employers. And this issue is especially relevant for me because my department is in the midst of a scandal involving a serial sexual predator who also happens to be a 79-year-old tenured professor. Um, And this is a mess for, yeah, it's just a, it's a fucking mess for a whole host of reasons. So first of all, this guy is still teaching. He was in the department, like the week that this news broke, like, you know, going to his office, all this stuff. Literally the day that the New York Times broke this story, he was teaching a lecture on the concept of rape and men's feelings of ownership over their female slaves' bodies in the Roman Empire. I kid you not, you couldn't make this stuff up. He was also teaching the required first-year class when I was a first-year in that department. So I had no choice but to be in a classroom with this guy. And this issue is like, there's a whole bunch of other layers to it. So I am one of the coordinators for the quote-unquote gender inclusivity and sexual respect initiative because my department already had so many shitty problems before this story broke that this Mm -hmm. program or position or whatever was already in place. And so it was my job last week to spend literal hours talking to male administrators who just like you just don't get it. Like, they don't understand that just because you haven't been assaulted by this one guy doesn't mean that this one guy's continued presence on campus and in classrooms doesn't make you feel unsafe. Like, I shouldn't have mm. to reach back into my personal history and be like, hey, um, I was assaulted. I was assaulted by a fellow graduate student. Like, this makes me uncomfortable. I'm having panic attacks in the graduate student lounge because, like, knowing that you were forcing me to be in a classroom with this guy who has been, like, serially sexually assaulting his advisees for decades, like, I shouldn't have to share that information. You should just get that, like, it's not okay and not just that it's like, oh, it's bad, but that it's, like, a deeply, it makes it a hostile work environment, makes it us, like, women feel deeply unsafe within the department. And, you know, like, we were told in one meeting, it was me and another graduate student who was also a woman, and we were sitting with two much older male professors who were also administrators in the department, trying to explain why this was such a problem, and they were taking, it was like, everything that we said was like a personal affront to them. Like, you know, if we were like, we were like, you know, male male professors, like generally speaking in this department, don't do a good job of, um, you know, encouraging female um, students. Like they often neglect, um, you know, they their their mentorship styles often favor men. All of this kind of stuff, and they they were like everything that we said was like 
you know, well, I'm not that guy. Like, they had to reassure us that they they weren't the people that were mm. doing these things. And it was like, that's, not only is that irrelevant, it's completely unhelpful. And that took up, I would say, probably at least 40% of this, like, almost two-hour meet, no, over two-hour meeting that we had with these guys, was just them trying to, like, assuage their concerns about themselves and make, right. make sure we knew. Yeah, and Anyway, one of them literally told the other graduate student who was there to calm down. Like, there was no... No. Nobody was yelling. There was, like, we we were trying to get our point across, and they kept interrupting us. And so we we were, you know, being forceful but not rude. And she she was, like... she was like, you can't say that to me. And he was, he, I had to explain that like telling a woman who's talking to you about the department's failure to respond to a sexual assault case and is being, you know, keeping her voice down, very controlled, emotionless, all like to tell her to calm down. That's a gendered comment. Um, and it's especially inappropriate coming from a, an older faculty member to a young woman graduate student in this circumstance. And the issue is that none of this is my job. Like, I shouldn't right. be the one that's having these conversations. I'm not getting paid for it. If I, Even if I were being paid minimum wage, I should have made several hundred dollars last week just from my meetings that I was holding on this issue. And with a union, there would be a union representative. Much more pressure would be brought to bear. The history department still hasn't issued a single official statement about mm. this guy. Um, graduate students are organizing, you know, there's petitions asking for him to be suspended. I I think that it's likely that undergrads may boycott his classes. I don't know what grad students are going to do, but he's still teaching two seminars. It's unreal. Yeah, that's, it's, it's unfortunately so common and so frustrating. And I'm so sorry that you've had to go through that. It's not okay. Yeah, this whole article It made me think about the last episode where we spoke about how dangerous many scenarios feel as a woman, whether you work in the service industry, at a university, at an office, or if you're just walking down the street. If you're a woman, you've likely been harassed in some way. So how do we collectively organize ourselves against this type of completely unacceptable behavior? I identify with this author so much because they talk about just walking away from these scenarios and not looking back. And part of me feels that way too because fighting back is absolutely exhausting work as Kellen was just describing. And part of me is just like, fuck it. I'm not going to put all my effort into fighting this because men need to do the work of correcting their own behavior or the behavior of the men around them instead of women doing this work. But at the same time, it feels like that will never happen. So we do have to step up and take on this very labor-intensive and possibly traumatizing work. And when you're at a university, you are very aware of how precarious your situation is. And when the old men who have tenure, like in Cullen's situation, have unbelievable amounts of power and graduate students have very little. Our own union rep, who is a woman, is the only union rep across the entire New York State University system that defended the union's previous executive vice president when he was accused of several cases of sexual harassment. So the woman who is supposedly fighting for my labor rights at my university is an enabler of sexual harassment. The layers are very deep, and I think it leaves many of us feeling completely powerless. And I just wanted to share a story, like a quick thing on this as well. I think I've mentioned before on this show that I have endometriosis, which is a chronic reproductive health issue. And last October, about a year ago, I had to have a really intensive surgery. 
And when I got back to teaching after taking a week and a half off, one of the professors I was teaching for asked me if I wanted to share with the class what had been going on. And I said yes, mostly because one in 10 women have endometriosis and it mostly goes undiagnosed. So I wanted to kind of explain what it was and, you know, what you can do about it. And one of the women students in the class asked if I could still get pregnant. And I said that there's about a 50% chance of women who have endometriosis getting pregnant. And the professor of that class responded, just see me after class because my boys can swim. And oh my God. The whole class laughed. So not only was he being extremely inappropriate and carrying out harassment, but he was doing it in front of over 70 students in a lecture hall, amplifying oh the normative, oversexualized hierarchy that is hegemonic in our society. And I felt really powerless and grossed out by the scenario and still had to work for that professor for the rest of the semester. That's unreal. I mean, it's not unreal. Like, it's not, it's not surprising to me at all. <laughs> I TA'd for a professor who made a comment in front of the entire class, also in, a, like, a large lecture hall, that women were essentially responsible for being raped uh, <gasps> when it happened. Uh, oh, Jesus Christ. That, you know, there are things that you can do to avoid it. Uh, and, you, you know, that, that happened, it was almost exactly a year ago, and I still had a TA for this guy for the rest of the semester. But, I mean, at least it wasn't a personal comment about me. Um, mm. It was still, inc- like, just terrible. And this is another, like, old guy with, with tenure. And I know that, like, the response from my department when I was like, he said this, I've got multiple complaints for undergrads, was like, oh, well, he's old. Hopefully he'll retire soon. Yeah, and totally. It's just like, this is, like, he's my boss. If I were in a company, at least I would have an HR rep that I could talk to, you know? Absolutely. But we don't, and we're totally left to fend for ourselves. And if, like, these people are powerful people in your field, literally, like, what are you going to do? And it's just, like, these these systems unionize like having strong unions are so necessary to protect women from retribution when we bring up things that are totally unacceptable in addition to just securing basic living standards for us as people who are doing all of this work for for universities absolutely (sighs) anyway I think we're going to take a quick break now um after that really light-hearted shit (laughs) oh well (laughs) Um, I hope y'all enjoy the tunes, and when we're back, we're going to chat with some women who have been active in organizing graduate student unions at their schools. We'll talk to you soon. This is Roe v. World by War on Women.
our guests. Um, I wanted to say hey to them. Thanks for coming on Season of the Bitch. Um, and we'd like to have y'all Thanks, start. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> we'd like to have y'all start this um, section by having you introduce yourselves. If you could tell us your name, what you're up to, you know, in terms of being a graduate student and all that stuff. Um, and we're going to start with Tanya. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for having me here. My name is Tanya. I'm a sixth-year PhD student in history at Columbia University. Um, I'm also from India, so that makes me an international student worker. And I've been organizing with the Graduate Workers of Columbia for over three years now, both as general organizer, so in departments like history, applied math and physics, engineering, but also participating in a separate working group called International Students Working Group, which brings international students together. So that's me. Awesome. Jess, you want to go? Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Jess Lambert. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University in the Anthropology Department. And I've been organizing with the BU Grad Workers Union for about a year now since our campaign started. Lizzie? Great. Um, so my name is Lizzie Carnot. I'm also at Boston University. I'm a second year in the chemistry department, also getting my PhD, and I've been organizing with our union for about six months now. Awesome. Very cool. We're like super excited to have you guys on here to talk about your various experiences. And we wanted to, again, start with Tanya. If you could just, you know, give us a little bit of background about the situation at Columbia and especially like the work that you're doing for international students and why, at least at this particular university or maybe generally, it's so important. Sure. Um, as everybody probably knows by now, uh, we voted yet to have a union several months ago. So in December of 2016, we overall voted yet to have a union. That was a 72% yes vote. But since then, Columbia University has been using various modes and methods and using the legal system to not come to the bargaining table and bargain with us. And we've steadily been winning. Every round of objections is on its way to being overruled, but that process continues and Columbia is yet to bargain with us. So that's where we are now legally. In the meantime, of course, organizing on campus continues. We've had bargaining committee elections. We've had one round of elections, and now we're actually about to have a second round because some bargaining committee members have already left the university and Columbia has yet to bargain. Oh my gosh. Um, so we've been organizing around bargaining. We've collected up to 2,400 bargaining surveys and drawing up bargaining goals based on that. So that's where we are with regards to the bargaining process. Still waiting for Columbia to come to the table, but organizing in the meantime. Other things that we've been doing in the meantime is a couple of things. Uh, we have a couple of working groups that run through the union. So there are two that I'm a part of. One is called International Students Working Group, and the other, much more recent than the International Students Group, is the Solidarity Working Group. The Solidarity Working Group concentrates on building solidarities with other organizing movements, both with on-campus groups like the Muslim Students Association, which is really crucial in times of the travel ban, and also with off-campus groups. Uh, we're still working on it. This is a new initiative, but the idea is that given the current political atmosphere, all uh, organizing movements of various marginalized groups in society should be united if there is to be a truly intersectional resistance. So this group is about to put a rally together on November 8, 2017 to mark, you can guess what. But in the meantime, the International Students Working Group 
does things like it operates in two ways mostly on the one hand it works like a self-help support group where international students come together collect their experiences discuss what makes their situation in Colombia hardest and tries to think about ways to address that and the other way we go about addressing things is by having organizing campaigns around specific issues like taxes or the travel ban or housing problems and this has been going on for over three years actually so one of the oldest things we did for example and this working group works we're not waiting for the contract for international student issues to be addressed Mm -hmm. so the idea is while we collect more and more information through organizing about what things international workers need in the contract in the meantime we're going to organize anyway so one of the things we thought several years ago for example was to observe that there is a structural imbalance in funding for, for summer research because American students get many more state-sponsored grants, whereas international students don't have so many funding options. So we ran a survey, collected details about how many people this inconvenienced, did a petition campaign, and took all of this to the administration. And the result of a protracted process of negotiation was 12 new summer research grants for international students. So that was a very concrete example of something that organizing and bringing information collecting and campaigning can achieve. But that was the time when Colombia was trying to convince us to not vote yes for union. So they were also more eager to throw things at us. One of the more recent things that we've campaigned for was again last year when the first travel ban, the anti-Muslim ban, hit all of us. And it hit us really badly because there were so many community members affected directly by it but also the general, the generally egregious racist nature of the ban. And the only reason we managed to pull, so we had emergency meetings, which is really something that Colombia should have done. But we called people who were affected to come and tell us how they were affected and what kinds of aid they needed. We had a rally in the space of a weekend, which called up to a thousand people. They brought a huge crowd out on those steps. That was awesome, um, by the way. It put a lot of pressure. Sorry? I was there and it was it was just like a, it was oh, amazing. great y'all just did an amazing job putting that together thank you very much but really it was such a collective effort that it's really those events that convince us that organizing works mm-hmm. um, totally. because we got so many people out and none of these victories are complete victories because again Colombia we had a long list of demands most of which Colombia did not respond to as an institution But what we did get them to do was offer individual support to affected individuals. So every time an affected individual came to us for support, we facilitated a meeting with the International Students Office. And for example, the Harvard International Students Group actually got a much more more concrete result. They had an emergency hotline established, uh, again, on the back of organizing around the travel ban. So yeah, that's the kind of thing that that convinces us to not, not give up. And now there is a travel ban part three. So we are now thinking about what Colombia's response to this fresh round of legal action should be. And also we are going to continue with other real problems like housing, for example. Yeah, that's awesome. So I I know there have been a lot of issues at Columbia with taxes. I remember like the big deal with mm-hmm. the IRS totally messing up a, y'all's tax returns last year. And I was I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the administration sort of without graduate student pressure exploits especially international graduate student workers absolutely absolutely um so the thing is everything that affects american 
student workers um, affects international students just a bit harder because your situation as non-citizens in America is so precarious. So the international students group, the union for me has been a very empowering presence because when there is no one in the administration who cares, the union has cared. So actually, the tax fiasco was an episode when I was not organizing because I was on my year of research abroad. And basically, the, the fiasco basically was due to some system failure. The IRS was demanding more money from all international students. And it wasn't just a Columbia-specific problem that affected various international students across universities. And basically, on top of all the money that is deducted from us at source, from which we're supposed to actually get returns, the IRS was saying none of us had paid enough and we had to pay a couple of thousand dollars more. It, the amount varied for different people within a particular period. And of course, it affected everybody out of the blue. It affected people like me even more because I was abroad for research and there was no way I could spend hours on the phone with the IRS. But Columbia's response initially had been that we solved this problem individually by each one of us calling up the IRS and everybody knows how long a phone call with the IRS takes. <laughs> and how, if it was not our fault in the first place, we shouldn't be the ones dealing with it on like an individual basis. So the International Students Group actually organized again. I wasn't here, but the people who were then here and organizing had emergency meetings. They had a petition campaign. Uh, Then they had a meeting with various deans. And then they took the matter to them. And they also reached out to Congressman Jerry Nadler, who has consistently been a supporter of international students' rights at Columbia. So they also used congressional power to pressurize Columbia. So basically it was a combination of congressional power pressurizing the IRS to find a solution and the union also pressurizing Columbia administrators to, again, work with the IRS to find a mass solution instead of asking every single international worker to solve this themselves. And the reason why I know having the union was particularly helpful in this case, even though Columbia is now going to claim it did everything by itself, the reason why I know it makes a difference because my brother goes to school at Chicago and the response of the administration in Chicago was similar, which was fix this yourselves or or if, actually Chicago said fix this yourselves. Columbia said don't worry. You don't <laughs> you don't have to do anything. Which is the worst approach when it comes to the IRS. <laughs> but I know that it it works in Colombia because the union put so much pressure and used its loving power to, you know, pressurize both Colombia and the IRS to come to a solution. And Chicago just said, yeah, we can't do anything about this, as, as far as I remember, because they did not have such a tight, you know, international student organizing campaign on at the time. So it's instances like this, really, that make life much simpler in crisis situations like this that are the institution's responsibility. It's Columbia's responsibility to ensure that its international students don't go through dumbfounding situations like this. But mm. unless the union puts pressure on them, sometimes they just don't act. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Y'all just done amazing work, even without the university coming to the table and just consistently in awe of, of how much work, especially the dedicated union organizers like Tanya, have bettered everyone's lives at Columbia. So just thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. Thank you for all the support. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Lizzie, because you're in a science program, I kind of wanted to ask you a question about unionizing science students. Like, do you feel like the science students are favored to the humanities at your school? And I know that's an issue at my school. I'm sure that 
science students are also being exploited, but there's often like a hierarchy of disciplines. In some campuses, it creates like this ambivalence from a lot of science students because they're like, it's actually fine for us. Um, and I did, I just wanted to hear about your experience, you know, as a, a chemistry major. Right. Um, so I would say that unfortunately that invisible hierarchy does exist. I frankly think it's quite dumb. Um, and <laughs> many scientists at BU would agree with me. So we've had a lot of success in organizing scientists from different departments, biology, chemistry, physics, um, earth and environment, and various engineering groups, sorry, engineering departments. But that ambivalence definitely exists among some scientists. It is a well-known fact that scientists generally get better funding sources. They have outside funding sources, so they get funded through NSF grants and NIH grants externally. Uh, it all still gets channeled through the administration through BU. But because of that, we generally have higher stipends. And so there's less inclination to want to unionize. But I would still say that there are plenty of folks at BU who are in the science, science departments who want a union because there are still things that tie us together with humanities students, things like health benefits, things like transportation costs, things like childcare policies, um, mm. grievance procedures. And so even though we might have slightly different conditions or slightly better conditions, there are still things that we care about and would like to have, you know, a say in. Totally. And like you found that when you're organizing the science students that they're generally receptive to it because of those reasons. Yes, exactly. So as soon as you bring up those kinds of points, they start to think about it a little bit differently and then they become very receptive to the idea of unionizing. Mm. That's amazing. So I've spoken to students in the sciences who have sort of said, you know, they're worried that unionization might bring their stipend levels down to the levels that those of us in. uh, So fucked. The worst idea. (laughs) Um, Those of us in, in, you know, social sciences or humanities have. How do you have you heard that argument and how do you respond to it? Yes. So it's come up a lot. Um, We respond to that by saying that in any contract that we would negotiate, everyone's stipends would increase. And so there would never be a case where we set an average and everybody, you know, meets the average, whether you go up or go down. No, the way that you negotiate a contract is that you start at a minimum, everybody's minimum, and then that minimum gets increased. So you apply like, for example, a 2% increase onto everybody's stipend. That means that, yes, if you start with a higher stipend, you have a higher increase, but by no means would anyone's stipend ever go down. Gotcha. Yeah, that's it's helpful and it makes a lot of sense. We were wondering if you guys, both Lizzie and Jess, could tell us a little bit about the climate for unionization at BU and why you guys feel it's important at your school to make this happen. Yeah, I think so. One of the things at BU, um, we have a pretty large unit. I think it's similar to the size of Columbia about 4,000 graduate student workers who are teaching, doing research, doing all kinds of, of work, being paid by the university. And BU has a really long history with labor activism. Unfortunately, it's not always very positive, um, <laughs> but we have a really strong union presence here on campus. Our non-tenure track faculty and adjuncts are unionized. Our clerical and administrative staff are unionized. And their support has been really helpful in thinking kind of about the different sectors on campus and the ways in which our priorities and needs overlap. 
I think at BU and at many universities overall, one of the biggest concerns for grad workers is this instability, um, mm-hmm. the precarity of living for a year, not knowing if you're going to get a cost of living raise, um, not knowing if you'll be able to start a family, not knowing how to handle problems or grievances when they come up. There's a lot of power imbalances that are kind of inherent to the structures of academia right now, both in the sciences and the humanities and social sciences. You're often dependent on your advisor or your PI, the principal investigator in a lab. And this one person might have kind of total control of your future career. Mm. They write the recommendations for any grants, for any jobs. They're the one who kind of in a lab might set your work schedule in the humanities and social sciences. They're the one who gives you kind of the reading list or the things you need to do. They help you set goals. And it can be a really fulfilling and rewarding relationship, but you don't always know what kind of advisor or mentor you're getting when you go in to a four- five, six, seven, eight year program. And that's a long time to kind of be with this one person. And there's a lot that can go wrong and that we've seen has happened in cases over and over again, where essentially grad workers are at the mercy of this one person. And kind of depending on the university structures, you may or may not get your complaints resolved when you're being forced to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And a lot of the stuff on academia, it you know, it relates on like, we are so passionate about what we do. Of course, we want to work in the lab all the time. Of course, we want to, you know, we're so lucky to be reading books and getting paid to teach and doing what we love. But it's it's still labor. Yeah. And this is about having a say in our working conditions and having a voice in decisions that affect us in our in our work environment. And I think that for us, especially at BU, this has been a really productive strategy as we think about our organizing campaign is kind of rallying around the different ways that we can have a voice on campus. Yeah. It's we, uh, Kellen and I talked a bit about that imbalance and like particularly how unfortunately there's also a layer of gender that comes into those imbalances and not only just in the level of exploitation, which is something I've experienced, but also the precariousness that comes from the old dude tenured professor who harasses everyone and is just like ruining everyone's lives. Um, so there's there's definitely a lot of layers there, and and I think what you said can can ring true for a lot of people. And I don't think people realize. Like I don't even think my undergrad students that I teach realize. People don't even understand that this level of intense struggle and exploitation is going on on universities across the whole country. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty true for us, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a couple questions for all of you. Has there been any experiences that you've had specifically as a woman in the university that you feel like has influenced your decision to become involved in these unionizing efforts? I can't say that that was a personal experience that motivated me to join organizing for the union, but it's definitely personal in that accounts of friends, uh, friends who are facing various forms of sexual assault or harassment in the university as workers and very often are failed by the institution's provisions mm-hmm. and are told a variety of things as, you know, Columbia, for example, to avoid 
your assaulter or just make mm. do uh, as ways of dealing with assault. Um, so no, in the, in the sense it isn't personal because I haven't suffered it, but people I know have suffered these and it just makes it all the more urgent that we have a contract again because if you are doing labor, then your labor and working conditions should be protected by a contract and a grievance procedure including centrally a sexual harassment complaint uh, forum through the contract. It it should basically be contractually guaranteed and there's only so much you can depend on goodwill of people who mean well perhaps but within institutions and structures of power and very gendered power as you guys said it's pointless to expect simply goodwill to solve problems to do with sexual harassment and it's not about ruining your relationship with your advisor or about corrupting what is essentially a labor of love. It's a about empowering people who are not empowered in a in an unequal working environment. So, yeah, I didn't start organizing for reasons of gender, but reasons of gender imbalance and lack of adequate protection for sexual for survivors of sexual assault is definitely one big reason why I and many others keep organizing. Mm. Yeah, I would say the same is true for us here at BU. I wouldn't say that any one particular incident of sexual misconduct, harassment, or assault um, really got either me or Lizzie involved in the in the campaign. But it's definitely been something that's really keeping us going. Uh, we know that incidences of sexual uh, misconduct, assault, and harassment are really pervasive uh, on university campuses. And it's something that if you haven't experienced it personally, like you just said, you know someone who has, and that kind of fear that it could happen to you, that there's not an adequate kind of method to address these problems, that the the methods that exist are often in the university structure themselves. They answer to the president or to the provost or to one of the deans. Mm. And that even now, Title IX protections are being weakened by the Secretary of Education. Mm. And it's really on the university's goodwill to say, you know, are they upholding um, the Obama-era protections that were outlined in the Dear Colleagues letter? Or are they not? And it's really, it often feels like it's on a case-by-case basis. And so for us, again, it's about getting this enshrined in a contract winning things like microaggression training, um, which has been won by the grad workers at the University of Washington, Mm. winning things like additional grievance procedures and um, layers of protection through neutral third-party arbitration, so that when you go to the office of the ombudsman or to your Title IX office and your complaint gets shut down because the person who harassed you is a dean and they just won an $11 million grant from the NIH, um, that that money isn't more important than your life, your well-being, your career, and that of everyone else around you who could be potentially affected by this. Damn. Yeah, shit's super fucked up. (laughs) And I will jump in and say that another important part of all this kind of organizing is also um, emphasizing the transparency of all these procedures so that Mm -hmm. things aren't just swept under the rug and decided behind closed doors without any access like for us to see what's happening so if someone is fired we you know we know about it rather than it just being something we find out months later through word of mouth and I mean Jess already said it but yeah I personally don't have any experiences that got me into union organizing based on gender misconduct but I think I will speak for women in STEM and say that there's a fear and an anxiety associated with 
being a female grad student in a very male dominated field. Like I'm in the theoretical Mm -hmm. chemistry field and it's, it definitely affects a lot of the choices that you make and a lot of the actions that you take or don't take um, in university structures. And so, yeah, totally. I think Laura had one more question Um, she wanted to ask each of you guys before we wrap it up. Totally. Um, This is more of like a kind of out there question, but I, I do want each of you to ask that or answer this and kind of dig into your brain about what you really want. If each of you could ask, for one thing that your university did for you, what would it be? Oh, that's a risky question, you know. (laughs) When you're organizing, you organize on the planks that you don't represent any one particular um, constituent to your group. Right. It's it's kind of an impossible, it's kind of an impossible question. And, you know, of course, there can be like one thing with like several caveats or whatever. (laughs) I guess like what, what's important to you as like an individual human, you know, Mm -hmm. even if it's not the most important thing to everybody. Well, I think the answer from anybody at Columbia would be clear, which is come to the bargaining table and the process will take care of it from there. So that's definitely (laughs) the first and foremost thing we would want from our university right now. And I think the process of collective bargaining should take care of the rest because after that, it's about being democratically organized and keeping the process transparent and representative. So, yeah, we'll take it from there as soon as we meet the administrators at the table. Yes, great answer. Um, I have a very sort of straightforward one, which is just a desk for every grad worker. Many of our graduate students don't have spaces or in which they can work on campus, and that seems very absurd. So mm. it's a nice, easy one. That's a good one. <laughs> well, yeah. easy, to, easy to say. Not re- Apparently, it's hard for the university to actually implement it, but... <laughs> Fuck those people. If it makes you feel any better, there was like 200 of us that stormed the president's office and the provost was talking to us and we were like, yeah, we just want higher wages. It's really quite simple. And he was like, yeah, world peace is simple too, but you don't see anyone doing it. I'm just like, whatever, dude. Like, (laughs) like, this is far easier. And just like a desk for every grad student is far easier. Like you can't hide under the guise of like, it's more complicated. It's like, no, it's not. (laughs) Just do it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I always have a different answer to this question. It depends on the day for me, I think, um, what I'm like maddest about. Um, I think today I would say um, better benefits, specifically focusing on um, healthcare, dental, vision, and mental health. Right now, Boston University has a tiered healthcare plan in which some students, often those in STEM uh, or those working in the medical campus, um, are given kind of a top tier healthcare plan that has lower co-pays, a lower deductible, um, and covers a lot more services, including the ability to add dependents for free. And grad workers in literally every other department are given kind of the second tier plan, the basic plan, as it's called. And you have to pay $2,813 to upgrade to the plus plan. Oh, my gosh. And that's the only way to add a dependent or to get a lot of life-saving medical procedures. So for anyone who has a chronic illness, for anyone who is starting a family or already has a family, it's crucial that we all have access to health care. Not everyone 
uh, has outside healthcare coming in, and most of us are dedicating between four and eight years of our lives to the university, mm-hmm. and we're not all able-bodied. We many of us have chronic illnesses or mental illness, and the rates of that in academia are high. Um, and we want to make sure that everyone has the ability to do the work that they want to do, to do the work that they came to the university to do. And I think having having equal access to a healthcare plan and really improving the one that we have, because even the plus <laughs> plan is not that great, um, is a huge priority for a lot of folks in, in our, our union. Yeah, and also adding a dental plan would be nice. We yeah. currently oh have no gosh. dental care or vision care, so. Really yeah. nice. <laughs> the dental plan is like, let your teeth fall out, and then maybe when you're a professor, they can deal with it. Oh, God. <laughs> or or uh, there are international students who will just wait until they go back home for summer so that they can get affordable dental care uh, instead yeah. of getting treated now when they have a problem. Oh, that's a problem. So. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Yeah, Columbia also just, I think they re-implemented the choice, but like two years ago, I want to say, you could opt into dental, like pay extra to get a dental plan. And then all of a sudden, not this past summer, but the summer before, they just dropped the option. Like you couldn't, you couldn't get any kind of dental plan. And I remember talking to people who, you know, one person had a root canal or something that summer, a month or two before the plan was dropped. And, you know... It it still sucked and they still had to pay a lot of money, but I knew somebody else who had a very similar procedure that fall after the dental plan was just unceremoniously dropped and had to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket on an already insufficient stipend because we didn't even have the option. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, we got messages in the union as well at the time saying, I just got an email saying the dental plan that I paid extra for is no longer valid. Um, and there were so many people going through that problem. And again, the idea of a contract is that the university just can't make random changes like that. Right. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for talking to us and for being on Season of the Bitch and for telling us about your shithole universities. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm. I feel like I'm like the crass one on this show, and like I don't. It's not really that I'm trying to be. I'm just like angry. I feel like all the time. And there's more than enough cause to be that angry. So. Yes. Yes. You're absolutely. Right. Well, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank so you much so, for having thank us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. Wow, that was super interesting and amazing thanks to our incredible guests and thank you all for joining us this week hopefully kellen and i filled the coven void as the only two hosts here today (laughs) and next week we'll be talking about sex work and solidarity which is going to be amazing oh yeah you can always get at us on the tweet bot (laughs) at at season of the bee as well as Facebook, Instagram, and email. Our email is seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Send us your music. Send us your thoughts. You can just, like, send us an email and be like, hey, we love you. Really loved this last episode. And we'd be like, thanks. We appreciate your fan mail. And we're sending smooches via the airwaves. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, oh, oh.
can I interject? Yeah. We again want we want to we want to pitch our upcoming live episode. Oh, um, yes. It will go on air for Patreon subscribers. So subscribe if you haven't. But even better, if you're in Chicago or in the surrounding area, come out with us. We're all getting shipped out to Chicago November fourth. Um, it's gonna be amazing. Tanya from the Trillbillies is gonna join us. You don't want to miss it. Nope. Um, yeah, and more details are going to be forthcoming soon, so be yes. on And, you know, in lieu of this week's episode, if you feel up to it and you know a TA or grad student, give them a hug or something that they feel comfortable with. Don't hug random strangers. <laughs> um, and just give them a little extra love. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're probably having a really bad time. <laughs> All right. Almost certainly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Always. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Love you, Khaled. Love you, Laura. Love you.